Hey, welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined by former England and Team GB Rugby Sevens captain, Tom Mitchell. Expect to learn about how your values can guide you as an athlete, how being introverted is a good thing, our role models growing up as athletes, lessons Tom learned as a leader, and much more. Hey, before we get started, I wanted you to try something with me. I want you to picture someone that you know who values their mindset and maybe their mental skills also. They could be an athlete, a student, maybe someone you know in an organization looking to actively develop themselves and their mental game. And the reason being is that we're trying to build a community of people here that value building stronger minds to feel better about themselves. My goal is that whatever you learn from the episodes in this show, you can not only use for yourself, but pass on and teach others. I think sport is so much more powerful than just the games we play. And while we want to help create good humans and great athletes, we also want to produce awesome role models for their communities. So if you can think of that one person and that they may benefit from this show, text them the link to this podcast because you could not only be helping them change their lives, but also positively affecting the lives of so many others. Thank you so much. But before we get started, please do me the great favor and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're following along on or listening on. It really does make a huge, huge difference. And it's the easiest and cheapest way to support what this show is all about. It allows us to grow the show and get on more guests, more episodes. So I thank you so much for doing that. In other news, don't forget to join The Game Plan, a free email that I send out every Friday morning with inspiration, motivation, and ideas on mindset, mental health, and your perspective. Simply click the link in the description below to join or head over to lewishatchett.com forward slash the dash game dash plan. Thank you so much, and I'll see you Friday morning. Also, if you're interested in developing your mindset or your mental health and know the value of putting your mental game first, you may find the MindStrong Academy helpful. It's an online academy designed to help you become a more confident version of yourself. Not only will you gain access to monthly mindset masterclasses, but also motivational videos, inspirational listening and reading, live podcasts, and much more. The subscription is the cost of a coffee per week and you can get started with a 14-day free trial. As well as this, you can have the option to sign up to the MindStrong Mindset course and as a part of that offer, you can get the MindStrong Academy completely free for life. As a listener of this podcast, you get a 20% discount by using the code RYGMindStrong at checkout. That's RYGMindStrong at checkout and there's a link in the description of this episode. I'll see you inside. But on to today's episode with Tom Mitchell. Enjoy. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to get into stuff today. Yeah, so you're up actually working with a previous guest, Rusty Earnshaw, and uh, you're up in Sedbur. So, what what you actually what what's going on up there? What you've been guys working on at the moment? We're doing some coaching. Um, so we're, we're coaching hundreds of kids actually across three weeks, uh, which is really cool. Some courses that run across rugby, which is what Rusty and I are working on. But there's other sports as well. So it's a cool environment because getting to interact a whole load with coaches from other sports, which is not something 
oh, I've done a whole load of, um, having spent a whole career in a rugby sevens environment, pretty much. But it's a tough pack to follow, Rusty. Uh, you know, <laughs> following on the podcast from him, it's not going to be easy. So yeah, I'll do my best. Um, but he's been, he's actually been spending much of these three weeks taking the mick out of me, uh, for hosting Q and A. <laughs> a few a few of the other coaches thought the boys would find it interesting to hear about some of my career so now he's just finding opportunities to take the mic about that brilliant totally yeah fair. just dropping you in the deep end man that's that's all you need oh, but big time. what are you so you're working with rugby and you're working with a lot of a lot of kids i'm actually always curious in what other people are seeing in younger athletes can you see a difference in the young kids that you're seeing now to almost what you would have experienced when you were younger? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, firstly, I didn't really experience anything like the offering that I tend to work in in terms of like, you know, coaching counts and stuff that I tend to deliver it, uh, are amazing opportunities for them at their age, like from sort of, you know, 10, 11, 12, all the way up to 17, 18, to have the experience of, uh, you know, being around other people, the level of like learning that is available to them, like in rugby, that we're trying to deliver, is amazing, fantastic. The young people who have got aspirations to go on and play at the top level, like it's amazing springboard. In terms of the way the the players and the or the young people are, uh, there's a couple of things we've talked about and we're noticing. One is around the higher levels of introverted uh, behaviour. So, um, I think there's some studies that. You, you probably shouldn't quote me on this. I'm sure you can pull out the research, but I, I think there's some evidence that there is. There are more introverts than extroverts now um, in young people, and how we react to that as coaches and stuff is really important uh, to understand. Um, but also, I mean, there's the distraction of these things, these phones. Yeah, these um, these are interesting things to manage for young people. I think I think they're a really useful tool, but can be really difficult. I think. They provide a very easy way to detach and to be distracted. And sometimes that's not useful for young people. But I mean, I'm learning a hell of a lot. Like working with young people, it's a great, uh, first it's useful for my parenting life because I've got a two year old. <laughs> so I'm just, it's really I'm having a lot of moments thinking, I wonder if my parenting right now is going to benefit him or not in the future. But um, it's also useful because I think working with kids actually helps you work with adults because I am a, a big believer that ultimately adults are largely kids in grown-up bodies. Like we still hold on to a lot of those same emotional responses. Obviously, a lot of our our thought processes and our behaviours are, are dictated by our early experiences as as children. So sometimes I find it's not in a not in a belittling belittling sense. But sometimes I find it's useful to observe adults and ourselves, by the way, in a sense of um. Yeah, you know, this reaction is almost as if a, as a child would react to this scenario. So let's sort of manage it accordingly. And again, I'm not saying that means you, you dismiss it or belittle it, but it helps us make sense of some of our emotional reactions sometimes. What have you kind of stumbled on when it comes to managing the slightly more introvert? I, I agree, by the way. I actually do agree that the introverted from what I'm just seeing, I don't know, I haven't delved into any of the research or the studies, but I, I would be highly, I'd be highly shocked if that wasn't true, that there were more introverts right now because I'm seeing it. 
I just see mm. general younger people coming into whether it's senior groups that are a little bit less sure of themselves. And do you know what? One of the one of the other things I think about it is there's two parts to it, right? There's it doesn't mean you have to be extroverted to be to be amazing. Does you don't have to be loud and and shouting it? I've got some of my favorite teammates and my best performing teammates were heavily introverted people. Uh, I think we just think that the extroverts are the ones that are the they're the they're the they're the golden kids or they're the the X factor players and the mavericks, right? And while they might be entertaining to watch, they may not be consistent. They may not have all of those attributes that are actually beneficial. And the other bit is is the fact that you don't have to try and mold yourself into being something that you're not. You don't have to mold yourself into thinking, if I am introverted, then I've got to make myself be extroverted to get there. So what have you, what have you sort of, as a group that are working there at the school and with, with Russell at the moment, what do you out of those discussions, what do you think you're falling on to help with people who are introverted? Yeah, well, it's a really interesting one because it highlighted probably a few biases. So um, just going back to the recent, I think a couple of the reasons I've already mentioned, but obviously COVID and children's experience of COVID is contributing to this but and and the lockdowns. The, the biases thing is funny because as you were speaking then, it reminded me at school, we did like a personality like profile and questionnaire probably wasn't very accurate but I, I actually just remembered that there was a question in it and it was to do with like introvert and extrovert and i had the impulse that being extrovert was a better one than being introverted and like it was a, it was supposed to be an objective thing but there was some sense in me that the extroverts were the were the cool kids the popular kids there was something going on there that, that probably suggested that, that was better to be a better way to be and, and i think we probably carry some of that weird it's weird it's curious i don't know where it comes from but that has probably manifested itself in society in general like we feel like people are extroverted it means they must be confident it must mean that they have it all figured out um whereas a lot of extroverted behavior might not necessarily you know be reflective of what's happening inside but yeah it's a really hard form of coaching as well because i think coaching becomes Coaching is a lot about what feedback you're getting from the players right around you. Extroverts tend to give off a lot of obvious feedback, which informs your coaching. I think introverts by nature don't. So you have to notice things in a different way. You probably have to be a bit more skillful in your questioning. And it probably requires a bit more skill as a coach. It doesn't come as easy. Um, so that's probably that's probably the first thing. I think being at peace with people who are introverted. And like not trying to change them, like you've kind of hinted at, it is a great lesson and a great starting point. Um, see how people interact in a game and training whilst being themselves. Because ultimately that's what we want, right? We want people to behave on the sports pitch as their most comfortable self. Like in an ideal world for me, the sports arena, whatever your sport is, would where you would, would be this place where you can feel most yourself and feel your whole self. So for a lot of people, that might be their whole introverted self. And we have to create room for that and be at peace with that, even though it might not look and sound and like a session, like we think a session should. Mm, yeah, I, I'm actually really excited about doing my research project that is coming up for, for the end of my master's. And uh, we've started to really get about 80% of the way to the question that we want to ask. And one of them is, it essentially is based around perfectionism. People that would have listened to the show know that I have a really keen interest in perfectionism. I speak about it a lot. I've had researchers on that are leaders in the area. 
and we'll definitely what, get into that because I've got some things on. Awesome, yeah. So I I am looking at other what's other called other orientated perfectionism. So essentially, a coach's perfectionism placed onto an athlete. So I want you to be perfect, or you could be a leader, could be a captain, right? Could be someone that I want you to be perfect. And we're going to look at what's the impact on the athlete and their own self-orientated perfectionism. So their own perfectionistic standards and strivings. Like I now want to be perfect because the coach has told me to be perfect. And its impact on whether that increases their fear of failure, whether they take more risks. But the other area we're looking at, and it's around risk-taking. And anyone that's listening to the show, please get in touch if you can think of what this next factor might be is that we're looking around something around freedom of expression. So essentially to do something like free of, without care of what other people think really, or, and it's built into that risk-taking factor. So it might be, I'll I'll use a scenario in cricket, my sport, where you're batting. Perfect metaphor for it right now, probably the way England cricket's going. So it's it's essentially built on their their way they're playing. Like this has been an, it's been an inspiration for this question. But essentially, imagine you're a batsman and you're facing a spinner and you, in your mind, your free expression that you want to do is to run down the wicket and hit the ball for six over the top. You actually know that that's a good option. Like you've, you've, you've practiced it. You know tactically that's the right thing. And for you to do that is the most authentic expression. But something inside you, whether it's the coach's perfectionism, whatever it might be, is telling you, take the safe option, take the easy option, which is trying to play like a tentative defensive shot and block it into the covers. But when you do that, you potentially become stiff and you mis-execute the skill and you could get outright. How I've, I've seen so many athletes and cricketers that say, oh, I wish I'd taken the option. I knew what the right one was and I just didn't take it. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in rugby, whether rugby players get similar similar things. I think of sort of wingers taking certain lines of attack and whether there's an easy, a, a safer option rather than sort of the, the one that they know deep down they want to take. Have you, have you ever experienced something like that? Yeah, I'm not sure I can tease out like a specific, but I totally know what you're talking about. And it, I guess I kind of describe it as when you get locked into the the, the pitfall of trying to think your way through a game rather than mm. the instinctive knowing. There's a kind of like instinctive gut knowing and then there's the thinking through. And um, the thinking through is always, generally speaking, is too slow like in the moment, right? It doesn't happen quick enough. So very rarely uh, works out to be a good outcome. You said, I mean, like this is uh, this is nah, but you know, like curiosity killed the cat is the traditional expression. Well, I don't think curiosity did kill the cat. I don't know what the story is behind that expression, but whatever. But hesitation, now that would kill some cats. And often you see it, you see it in training when you're trying to you're trying to change some stuff in training, and there's like, oh, is this the right decision? Oh, maybe, maybe not. Okay, I'll do it anyway. But by that time, it's too late, and that hesitation kills you. Whereas actually, if you'd either done it first time. Or you decided not to do it first time and and done something else, you probably would have ended up with a better outcome. So we, I mean, we used to talk about that a lot. Like, best is the, the top of the tree is the right decision. The next thing is actually the wrong decision, and the bottom of the pile is no decision. And you often see it in rugby, you know, hesitation and that like no decision making moment. Very rarely leads to anything good. Whereas often you might say, oh, there was probably a better decision you could have made there. But because you 100% went through with what you decided to do, it, it became a good outcome. You kind of turned it into a good outcome. So we used to talk about that, like right decision, wrong decision, no decision, in that order. 
Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean about that gut, the doubt. I guess it comes, I think, so I'm not wanting to move this fo- forward too quickly, but I think it comes from what lives in your kind of deeply rooted beliefs a lot of the time um, about your environment, the world, and, and yourself uh, to a large degree. Anything on that before I, 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 I could, I'm very mindful I could dive into my own experiences like that. Perfectionism yeah. Thing. yeah. So, I mean, p- perfectionism is really at the heart of people that doubt themselves. It's like, why take this option when I risk being imperfect or technically yeah. I'm perfect and safe as I am when I don't do anything. So why take yeah. the risk and go into doing anything? I actually had a really interesting conversation with a group of I was giving a keynote yesterday. There's a group of young female cricketers that are trying to make it in their way. And and anyone that's listened to the podcast or knows my story, I'm not going to dive into it, but knows some of the things I had to overcome to get to where I, I did. And part of the questioning that I get usually after a, a, a keynote is that they will ask, Oh, you you seemed like you could just sort of break down through walls and sort of you were confident, you just were persistent, and this was sort of like an innate for you. And I said, Well, no, this is actually it was it was the opposite. I was so scared of taking a risk. I was so scared of putting myself out there, so anxious, because there was this voice telling me that, and that's come from an environment, that's come from interactions, that's come from my own standards and just worries and anxieties and I had to actively break out of it to actively change who I was bit by bit now I'm not saying I was going to the gold standard straight away but it was like small incremental steps I'll just try this little tough thing today and then I'll try something slightly tougher tomorrow and slightly tougher the next day and then now starting to build up some momentum and then I'm now 33 and I wouldn't really think about some of those things that I would have definitely worried about loads as a as a kid yeah, uh, yeah, that resonates. I mean, I have been told countless times since I was young and like at school, um, oh, you seem so confident doing that. And I was just, and I probably was like, yeah, yeah. But the degree of anxiety that was that was hanging around me, and it, it's probably quite common, but I, the problem is I was quite good at like, acting through it, I guess. And the problem is the more you, you act through those scenarios, you actually you're probably then more reluctant to meet your whatever is the root of the anxiety and stuff because you just but you're still promoted to those situations where you're going to be up in front of people for example so that you know i speak in front of the school quite a lot when i was at school and people thought you know i was quite confident with it or quite relaxed but that was largely a facade (laughs) but the problem is then you end up doing more and more of that stuff and kind of faking it till you make it. But if you never actually address the root cause of the anxiety, you just carry that around with you. And then it's not a particularly enjoyable experience. Because then the only the only nice feeling once you come out the other side of it is just relief. And like it really kind of want something more than relief at the end of those moments. But the I mean the root of that for me was this this like inbuilt desire to want to be perfect. And not just perfect uh, um Rugby, actually, it was kind of weird with wanting to be the best at everything. But I was kind of social enough and understood enough about the world that being outwardly wanting, I, I don't know, it, uh, this was largely subconscious. I've unpacked a lot of this over the course of my career with the help of, with a sports psychologist uh, who was awesome. And so even if I, I mean, whatever it was, I turned my hand to, there was this 
kind of at the root of it all was this desire to want to be the best at it and to want to be perfect. But I didn't really notice it as that. It manifested itself in some really useful ways, like working hard. You know, if you want to be the best at something, you tend to put a lot of time and energy and effort into it. So I'm grateful for that. But it also means that you're probably going to encounter quite a lot of fear and anxieties and, uh, you know, beyond nerves a lot of the time, which can inhibit your enjoyment of certain moments. I think rugby, I didn't tend to have that huge amount during the game, during the play. Like often there was a freedom that is associated with being in it. Uh, uh, I felt when I used to play cricket at school, it was a great example because you're not, there's a lot more space, right, in the game. There's a lot more in between moments. And so I, I, the first like however many overs, if I was back, felt incredibly isolated. And that desire to want to do really well, be the best and be perfect, uh, was having an absolute field day. It's like, <laughs> it's all that time to, to live its life. Um, and it's not distracted by, fact that you've actually got to do stuff because most of the time you're standing around at the crease um so i used to be so scared going out to bat so yeah it's 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 been something that i've had to manage but understanding that my brain works that way means i've i've got to the place where i can appreciate the benefits that that sort of mindset has given me and i can notice when it starts to become less useful and react and change my direction of travel accordingly you you spoke a little bit there about it but what drove you and what was the experience like of you going to a sports psychologist yeah i mean we were lucky we had a um lady called katie warren who joined our team to work across the team really um this would have been back in 2014 maybe um 2015 around then and uh, to begin with, it was largely team stuff. So it was just helping us understand a bit about the brain, the psychology, very basic level. Um, but it was pretty useful, like understanding, you know, the the way our brain might react in the moment, but how we might want to react or, or which bit of our brain might be more useful to make good decisions in game, things like that. I ended up doing some one-to-one stuff with uh, which, and I thought I was going into it thinking, great, this is just going to help me be better at rugby. I'm going to win more games <laughs> ended up being pretty deep, <laughs> ongoing work for for a good while, or felt like a long while. I can't remember how many months it was where we really got into some stuff. But we ended up going doing a process where we went all the way back to the childhood memories and things like that. Which I'm not sure at what point I signed up for that, but <laughs> kind of. And it was it was, it was really tricky, in all honesty. Like there's some really challenging moments because part of it was really framing, re-understanding or, or seeing my early years through a slightly different lens and yeah, moving the, the jigsaw pieces around so that I was kind of seeing a different picture and finding a picture that actually married up with my experiences now and my, the way my mind was working now and one that made sense. Um, there's, there's some pushback along the way, like anyone who's gone through an experience like that uh, might agree that there's some kind of resistance because it's it's like, why not hang on? Like I had this idea of my life as it's here and I was quite happy with that. And then, but, but there was probably some bits that jigsaw pieces didn't quite fit. So in order to make those fit, you might have to undo the whole jigsaw a little bit and then put it all back together. And, and hopefully by the end, you've found that all the pieces you've got fit a bit better now. And it's also easier to add new pieces into that jigsaw if you do that process. And that's kind of what I've found. And it was, um, 
yeah, it's essentially for me just like picking up on on some behaviors and then I think being in sport from a young age probably fostered this as well. So it was it was brilliant and I'm like love doing loads of sport. It was where I had so much fun. But actually sport is also a um an accelerator for this kind of perfectionist mindset because it's you've always got that that dangling carrot of win or lose. So there's always a, an outcome that you can go after. There's always improvement. Whereas if you I don't know, if you're into more, I don't know, if you're an artist, I don't know, it might be the same and all, but my experience of it, sport kind of probably fostered this this perfectionist mindset. Um, and the first step to working with it was separating myself from it a little bit. Like we used to kind of refer to it as perfect Tom, <laughs> which, and, you know, have a bit of a laugh about it because obviously that was unattainable. And then that was probably step one was like recognizing that, or creating a bit of separation between my thoughts and, and myself. Coupled that with quite a lot of like meditation work, which I, I found pretty powerful. Again, just being more skillful with uh, being able to allow thoughts to come and go. And that was, that was a game changer for me, not just in terms of my rugby, but in terms of just life, um, how I'm able to parent, how I'm able to coach. Certainly, uh, I think I'm probably just a better person as a result. Um, so it's a really powerful process. That's awesome. So it really did sort of sing to the approach that I'm a huge believer in, which is you sort the human being out first, then the athlete can be great second. And you felt that. So you did actually see an impact in your rugby. What what was the sort of pre-work rugby player like to the post-work rugby player like? Um, well, it wasn't like I was kind of, it wasn't chalk and cheese. It wasn't like I was rubbish and that was really good. Like I was actually probably, <laughs> I think in terms of accolades and point scoring stuff, I probably did most of that in my early career like before before I did any of this. So maybe I got it totally wrong. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that was, that was largely down to people kind of figuring me out a bit. But, it, but mostly around the leadership. So I was captain of the side from 2014. So I was, how old was I then? Like relatively young, like early 20s. Didn't really know my ass from my elbow, to be honest, like on reflection. Thought I was kind of mature and knew a lot about the world. And I'd done some cool stuff, but I didn't uh, didn't know a huge amount about myself, really, like looking back. Hadn't done a lot of that self-discovery. I would have said I was always, I've always been quite self-aware, but this was the next level. So it just really improved the way I was able to, to lead and interact with people. But it wasn't a, a smooth process. I mean, we had... In 2019 season, 1819 season, we had the Olympic qualifying season. And the job that season was to finish top four in the World Series. So anyone who follows the series knows that you get points for each tournament. And then at the end of it, in that season, the top four got automatic qualification for the Tokyo Olympic. We came, we were, we were fourth, we were fifth. We were like really close to that zone. And there was some other stuff going on. There was like a few distractions. It was probably a bit of time in my career where I had a bit of like a career fatigue. We'd had the joy and the highs of Rio 2016. Had a really good season off the back of that. And then we'd had the Sevens World Cup 2018. And then it was kind of just like a bit of a flat feeling going into that season. But it was an Olympic qualifier, so I knew it was big. So I kind of had this double whammy of unuseful thoughts. One, not feeling as energized for the season as I had done naturally up to that point. The other thing being like the self-imposed pressure of um, 
of, of needing and then manifest itself as needing to qualify for the Olympics. And those things were basically leading me to try too hard. So I was on the wrong side of the edge. Like I was giving away penalties. I was probably trying to do a little bit too much myself. I was probably playing with my shoulders quite close to my ears, you know, like tense up. Just and it was it was it was fractured. Like it wasn't like I had a desert, like horrible year. It was an amazing moment I loved throughout that year, but there was definitely a running theme. I was just holding on to it too tightly. Anyway, we ended up going fifth that at the end of the regular season. So we had to qualify through the European tournament that year. Uh, but my lead into that was right. This is not going to go well for me or the team if I'm carrying this tightness and this. Or this kind of gripped up desire, like it was more than desire, it was a need for this qualification. So we, we did some good work as a team. I mean, I wasn't the only one in this place. Like there was a bit of pressure on us. We'd done well in Rio, come back with the silver from Rio. So the thought that GB wouldn't qualify for Tokyo was like, well, Jesus is like bad news if we don't get it. And everyone was very aware of that. And it's not something you get a chance to do every, every day, you know, qualify for the Olympics. So, there was now there was a lot of tension across the team. We did a, I think we we found out there was a lot of tension because uh, we asked ourselves on a scale of zero to a hundred if a hundred is the worst thing you can ever imagine happening. Where would not qualifying for the Olympics place on that? And there was a lot of there was a lot of sixties and seventies on that scale, which and there was a good moment which I was reminded of actually. Uh, one of the young lads who was it was probably knew he wasn't going to get picked for the Olympics this time around. And he'd just come in that year. He was loving it. Like, comes straight out of school and he was playing professional rugby. He was traveling the world playing seven. He didn't, you know, there's, he was just living in the moment. And then he was, someone asked him and he was like four, four or five out of a hundred. And obviously boys who've been there for a bit longer, like 60, 70, completely lost perspective on, on what this was. So we did some good work as a, as a squad that got us to a good place. And I, the difference between me coming out the back of the regular season and then a month or two later going to the European qualifier was massive. The tension had gone off. I felt like I was enjoying the rugby and I was much, I, I didn't want it any less. Like I still wanted to qualify, of course, but I had, the blinkers had just come off a little bit. And there was a bit of light shining around, which I'd previously be closed off because I was so concerned with with this goal that I'd locked onto. So that was a good lesson, but that was all post work. Like, so that was post a lot of this psychology work I'd done. Now it was a good lesson in needing the notification. Like, I think I probably had a couple of years post Rio where I felt like I sort of figured some stuff out, and then in that 2019 season, just couldn't move on for myself for a large portion of it um and i needed a nudge i needed some support and i was fortunate i got it and um we had a good management team including ktr psychologist who did a bit of work with us um around that time whilst heavily pregnant i think at the time so she was like putting the work in as well to be fair um and it, and it was it was good lesson because it's like that reminder that you never figure this stuff out. like there's no end point with any of this right it, and that's why I said about the jigsaw, like you, it's not like you've got the picture and that just lives in, lives with you forever. It's creating a picture that fits, that then has a nice look to it you can add to. Um, and that's kind of how I think of it now. Let's, let's talk about leadership real quick. Um, so I have no doubt there would have been a different Tom when you first went into it to then when you, you left. So 
if you have any, what would be some of the lessons of leadership that you've learned over your career? So I always pause before I give lessons because my first lesson is not to try and emulate anyone too closely. So like everything I'm about to say should definitely be taken with a lens of how does this apply to me, myself, my authentic self and my behaviors. Because that's kind of where I went wrong, I think. When I first started, it wasn't a problem. So I got given the captaincy. Definitely didn't think I was the person to do it at the time. Felt like I was too young, inexperienced, didn't really know what I was doing. Just focused on playing the game as best I could and, you know, try not to sound silly in the team talks. That was kind of the extent of it when I started and it ran pretty smooth. But then I was like, right, I've got to try and take my leadership to the next level because that's what everyone says you're supposed to do. You know, I also wanted to be probably deep down the best leader that any of the team had ever had. So that was still there. And it was when I started to work on it, it became tricky because I was like, well, people say this person's a good leader because they're like this. And it, was, it wasn't like I was exactly trying to be like someone else, but you try to adopt behaviors. I didn't really understand how certain people were saying, you need to be more of this or more of that. And I was like, okay, yeah, I do, I do. Um, but I didn't really know how to do that. I didn't know how to be, to be a throwback reference, but like Martin Johnson is a leader for England rugby that people talk about. Like, I don't know Martin Johnson very well, but I'm pretty sure we're very different people. So what was the point of me trying to be him? It took me a long, long time to figure out that it was okay for your super strength as a leader of a rugby team to be compassion. Because most people said it had to be that you're like, you're going to make people you know, run through brick walls. Like, yeah, that's a cool skill to have. That's great. But if I didn't possess that, that's okay. It's also really cool to make people feel like you really care about them and that might get the best out of them as well but it took me quite a lot to kind of figure that out and um anyway, again it's an uncomfortable sticky process there's also there was a lot of self-doubt wrapped up in that as well uh, um i remember there was there was a meeting we had we we're in hong kong before the hong kong servants which was one of the biggest ones and it's 2015 we had quite a young group out there actually they were rotating the squad a little bit and I was desperate, as I said, like compassion. Kind of, I was very democratic as a leader. I wanted to hear from everyone, give everyone a chance to, to raise their voice and, and to say what they wanted to say. Uh, we were having this goal-setting meeting before the tournament. We're in a hotel room. And it had been going on for about an hour. And you can imagine, like, young 20-something-year-old lads, after an hour, like, they're fully done. They just want to go to dinner. They want to go and play some table tennis or something. And I'm there, like, thinking, okay... Everyone's had to say, I don't really know how to bring it to a close. I didn't really know what we needed to land on as golf. I was like a little bit locked. And what I've, and I was kind of, you know, some people saying one thing, some people saying another thing. And what I probably should have done is jumped and said, right, hands up, who thinks we'll go with this and, and then go with the majority and just made a call. But I was so desperate to like give everyone the chance and not like jump over anyone and not tell anyone too much what to do i don't want to be too dictatorial maybe because i'd had some bad experiences with leadership but then some one of the coaches ended up coming in and closing it off for me and i just felt so worthless felt so empty and he was trying to help me out like he was trying to do the best thing but i felt like i could just like cut my legs off in front of everyone and um and that was a massive learning experience i'm so glad it happened because the biggest lesson i took away from that back to your question is is that you can afford to make mistakes in the leader like it is okay in the same way as we talk all the time with athletes and the decision making in game it's okay to go down the track to a spinner and and have a, and try and knock him back over his head for six if you think that's the right thing to do 
if you get out, we'll unpick it afterwards and work out whether it was your technique, whether it was maybe the wrong ball to go for, the wrong context in the game. We'll work that out afterwards, but life will go on and you'll still be loved afterwards. I found, I found that okay. I, I could understand that as an individual player. Like if I did a bad pass, I moved on. Like it didn't sit with me too much. But as a leader, there was something I felt about the consequences of whatever I did as a leader that felt more powerful. Because in some ways, they are, your job is to try and impact other people around you for the better. And I was so fearful of getting that wrong. So fearful of, uh, yeah, it, it impacting people in a way that wasn't useful for them. So I was probably was passive for a lot of the time, like too scared to actually do anything. Which in that meeting was it was a kind of case in point. So it was a brilliant lesson in that like go for stuff, like go with your gut, make a call. You can always make mistake and learn from it, even when it comes to leadership and working with people. And kind of linked to that one is it's also a really useful thing to be uh, open to your mistakes as a leader in front of your group. So some of the most powerful moments and the, the moments that move me forward and and they say the team for where I sort of was like, I don't want to swear on the podcast. I was about to swear on the podcast, and um, lads, you can mate, like, you go for it. <laughs> I was like, lads, like I, I messed up. I got that wrong. I'm sorry. I, at the time, my gut was telling me this, and I went with it. And I'm, you know, that's on me. I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm going to try and learn from that. And I'm pretty sure, like everyone's going to be like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> it's going to be like, if, and if anyone doesn't, if anyone still holds that against you. That's on them. Mm. I think is it's a sort of again, these are all linked, but a, a final one I would put is if your intentions are in a good place, then it makes the mistakes much easier. So as long as you've understood who you who you are as a person and who you're trying to be as a captain, largely based around your values and what you think is important. If you're guided by that when you're going into a situation, very hard to ever regret your actions. So I think that's a useful one to spend some time figuring out, right? Actually, what is important to me and, and go with that. So what would be an example of that just to make it kind of real for people? Like some of the lads for the England rugby team, I don't know when this is going to go out. But they've just done the squad selection for the Rugby World Cup. And, you know, there would be some stuff around selection. It'd be really difficult. So for a coach in that, that scenario, I'd hope that the coaches would have thought, well, what's important to me as a person, as the leader of this group? and and then done the selection accordingly it doesn't mean that the people you're not selecting are going to be happy with your decision but it means you can do it in a way where they've got where you're demonstrating your values whether that's like respect for other people kindness love you can direct all those things whilst also delivering bad news whether the person receiving the bad news recognizes those things in the moment is another matter i'd say almost certainly they won't but hopefully down the line they might and they will and they'll be able to carry that forward does that make sense yeah yeah i really like the values bit as well i think that from whether you're a leader or, or captain or just an athlete in yourself i've had some experiences if i link it almost to to a performance point as well so away from almost leading people but but actually people going into performances with their values in their mind because you can think about the technical the tactical the the physical whatever it is but if if you don't really play the game 
how you want to play it in accordance with the character and the human being that you are, there's going to be an element when you come off the field, you'll think, that wasn't me. That wasn't how I wanted to go about it. And I just didn't play. I wasn't me. I wasn't able to be me. And I think it's really important for people to have that values part of their puzzle figured out. And the earlier you can do it, I think the easier it becomes to take criticisms, to deal with tricky situations, to to interact with coaches, other teammates, whatever it might be. And that experience becomes far easier because you can move on, you can move past it because you've got a bit of a compass. You've got a compass guiding you in what's the decision I want to make here? How do I want to go about it? So if we were to take that example of you in that team meeting, like whatever your values were at that time, like, okay, if one of them is respect or you want to be clear, or, but having that sort of guidance through your values can really help someone get through an experience like that because it can make you make the decision that may not be unclear a bit clearer. I, I always yeah, think that's. I always think that's a nice little thing for not only leaders to have, but actually people that are being led as well. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think you, yeah, your values. Thinking of your values is like the compass. Is oh, it's pretty cool. I like that. Or like anchors as well. I mean, I think they give you like a good bit of stability and um, and it's closely linked to. We used to talk about our why a lot. Like, mm. what's what's our why? What's our our reason for doing this? What's our purpose? Uh, and I think if you can get to the point where you spend enough time with those things, talking about them, bringing them to the to mind regularly, um, reviewing things based on those values as well. Like we used to do that as a team, like what are our values? And then the first thing we'd say is like, right, post game, did we get our values? Boom, boom. And then we'd go into the technical stuff. And I think it's really good because then it becomes your decision-making guide subconsciously. So like, you're not even thinking, okay, what's my, you're not going through the, what's my values? What should I do? It just, it just happens. You just become guided by them in a sense that you're almost oblivious to after a while, I think. Doesn't mean they don't change. You're like, you have to reassess and, and, um, and readjust in periods. But I think it's good. It's a good use of time, good use of time. And I tried, that's why I tried to encourage the, the young guys I coach to do that now is to like actually, it's a weird, it's a hard thing to think about maybe when you're 14, 15, it's not, maybe not a cool thing to talk to your mate about, but like, let's talk about what's important to you and what might be some things that you want to live by as values. Um, and, and the dreams as well. Like how often do we talk about young people, what their dreams are and actually being guided by that in terms of their education, their sporting education, the way we behave as adults around them. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Well, I think for younger people, because I know there are younger people that listen to this podcast, one of the one of the ways in which I've found for younger athletes to be able to find their values, if it's too big a question for them to take on right now, is where the power of role models plays a huge part, is pick someone in your life, whether that's someone that you see on TV or a, an athlete that you love, someone that you genuinely admire, and write down what you think it is that makes you admire them, away from the physical attributes of them being an incredible athlete because you're not going to be at that level yet. Think about the way in which they go about it. And the funny thing is, is I think this is where a lot of people end up going towards the humility end of the spectrum. It's like 
we love humble athletes. We love the Roger Federer's, right? We love those that when they're finished, they're thanking their teammates. They're the ones that are thanking the the ball boys and ball girls at, at Wimbledon and the umpires and everything and, and the people that organize the events and they're really humble. And when you're talking to a young person, it's it's about drawing out those types of characteristics from their role models and go, right, well, if that's something that you think is... Uh, a strong value in them that could be something you want so maybe humility is something you want to have you want to be humble stay grounded and and then you can start to un- unpack it from there i think because yeah, yeah you're right it's, it's probably too big a question for them to go like well who am i what am i about i'm 14 years old and i've only been on this this planet for for a little while yeah because who knows like even now like someone said who are you Tom? I'm like, well where do we start where do we go now? <laughs> but yeah yeah it's like Spend time looking at who you admire, who your role models are, and not just looking at, you know, their cars and their career success and the medals and the trophies, but actually what behaviors do they do that is a useful one. Who would be some people you would have looked up to over the years and behaviors that you would have, or values that you would have seen that you tried to emulate? It's really interesting. Um, I I don't have loads of sporting heroes. I, I weirdly grew up being a, a West Indies cricket fan uh, when I was younger because my mum's best friend is from Barbados. So I actually, for a little while, thought I could play for West Indies. <laughs> and it wasn't until <laughs> the crashing knowledge came down on me that I actually was English and I may have to want to try and play for England. So I was like, damn it, I've been supporting West Indies for so long. So I had people like Kirtley Ambrose and Courtney Walsh, who I, I loved as, as cricketers. But then when I thought about this and unpacked it, I mean, I have a couple of I have a couple of funny two ways about this. I've the the ones that I sort of really liked when I was younger, who were people like I actually loved underdog stories of people like Messi. And originally, there was an early um, advert done on Messi when he was really young through an Impossible Is Nothing campaign at Adidas, and it was yeah. more about his hormone deficiency he had as a kid and, and overcoming that and playing the game. And I loved how he had used that to his advantage to make it. Uh, people stories like Jonah Lomu coming overcoming um, his his diabetes wasn't it and um, was it diabetes I can't remember uh, I think he had uh, uh, was it kidney Kid, yeah he had, had he had to be on dialysis sorry he was on di- heavy yeah, dialysis man. machines and he uh, overcame that there'll be someone that will definitely correct me from listening to this podcast so I'm sorry for getting that one wrong but yeah the stories of Jonah Lomu they were based on that as well. Weirdly, people like Lance Armstrong, which, yes, I've crossed that one off. And then another one, which I crossed off my list, was Oscar Pistorius, because I saw this guy who had no legs running against people with legs. Obviously, he's tarnished his reputation for what he did off the track. But I don't think it took away from what he actually accomplished on the track, because what he was doing running with no legs against people with it. Then character-wise, people I loved were Robin Williams and Jim Carrey. And the reason being was because they used humour in their most authentic way to be this larger than life character. And if I really look at me as a kid, I was, I remember even getting parts in like a school play and I wanted the craziest part in that school play. I wanted to be the Joker. I wanted to be the character that was, that had the colorful clothing. And and, and I actually think I'd lost, I've lost that a little bit growing up and I'm trying my hardest to bring that back. And even in whether it's the podcast or content I'm creating, I want to bring that out more and bring that out in the, the interactions I have with clients as well. So being that sort of off the wall character was something I think weirdly 
sport squashed in me. I think it took it out of me, built from the changing rooms, the rhetoric around the messaging of like, you have to be serious in order to be great. You have to be hardworking and serious in order to get this excellence and missing the fact that you could be funny, jovial, off the wall. That's why I love people like Mark Wood at the England cricket team right now. I think Mark Wood's an amazing character in the sense that he just is him. Like, and people love him for it. And I love the environment that he's been in to be able to be accepted as that and not squashed. Whereas environments that I went into squashed that out of you through judgment. And that's not what's done around here. Yeah. Who were yeah, yours? I, I can who, 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 who are yours? Um, I guess the, the main sporting role model I probably had, like if I was going to pinpoint one, would be Johnny Wilkinson. Okay. Um, which is really interesting because obviously some of the behavior, you know, some of the behaviors I was talking about around like perfectionism, yeah. not, not so far from his own experience. So I've kind of learned a lot from, I think I was fortunate in some ways I was kind of, uh, still had, I, I kind of learned a few of the lessons that he's learned and I learned them kind of during my career, which, but I, I certainly like a lot of his story resonate. Um, mm. I think he's doing some really cool stuff at the moment. Like, see, he speaks a lot about self and um, so quite deep stuff, which, which I think again has challenged some people, like in rugby, because that thing you're talking about conformity. I suspect there's still a lot of rugby clubs around the country that kind of write Johnny off now because it's like, you know, wow, the stuff he's talking about, what kind of nonsense is that? I imagine is some of the conversation because he. It's going to some deep places, some interesting places, some places that are quite challenging for people to probably get their heads around, both like intellectually, but also he might be questioning some things that are uncomfortable around the sport and our approach to it. Um, but yeah, he, he would have been one. I, I think. I mean, he was just cool. I love the way he changed the game as a as a as a ten. I love the way he used to be super physical as a ten. I thought that I really respected that. Like. I was someone I like, I wasn't physical. I've never been like really good at the physicality, but I always had the kind of desire to be involved in as many moments as possible on both sides of the ball. Um, and I think some of that was learned from him, which was really cool. It was interesting actually, um, have, when I think about like Olympic inspiration, because when you, when you play rugby in this country, well, when I was anyway, you never grow up thinking the Olympics is going to be a thing, but as a fan of sports, the Olympics, especially around like the Sydney Olympics was, I remember watching it thinking, oh, I'd love to do that. What an amazing thing to be at the the biggest sporting event in the world. And like, I still find it a ridiculous thing that sevens, like my, my love of sevens and the Olympics happen to merge and become, you know, this, the stars kind of aligned for, to allow me to live that out. Uh, I still quite, it doesn't quite feel real. And like, I've tried to talk about it quite a lot. Anyone who'll listen. Um, just to try and make it, make it feel real. But, um, uh, yeah, so I think role models for me, one massive thing in that respect, I think I was always more of a, uh, participator in sport than a fan as well. Like, I don't think I've ever considered myself a really good sports fan. I a hundred percent agree with this. I, the way you've just described that, I'm definitely in that camp as well. Like I think of it, I think of myself as being at games, like even when my dad would take us to go watch whether it was a football match or a cricket match or rugby and I'm 
more watching what was going on the sidelines, like with the coaching staff or the players on the bench, almost like a rugby match. I'm watching the off the ball movements, like because I was putting myself in sort of what's going on on there. And then if it was like a cricket match, which is obviously a long format game, be playing with kids on the side of the ground, like throwing a ball around. And I just was more interested in playing. Like there's, I definitely think there's a value in, if you have the mindset of a fan for too long, you probably end up going to be one. Do you know what I mean? Like I think there are, there are, there are geniuses in the sport that are just like addicted to their sports. But I think there's also a nice element of being kind of naive in your sport and sort of yeah. being having a low knowledge of it as well because you're just living it. It might also speak to like the sport you watch and how engaging that is. I mean, I, yeah. I imagine there are a lot of kids now watching test cricket that would actually want to watch some of the cricket, whereas however many years ago, they probably would have been looking around, looking for something to entertain them. Whereas now they might be yeah. so and we need to think about that as a hey, rugby needs to think about that um, at the moment. I think it's trying to address it a little bit. Like if you've got kids in the stands, how can you actually keep your eye- their eyeballs on the pitch rather than one room and create a spectacle that people want to engage with? Um, but just coming back to the individuality thing, you said, I think um, particularly male sport, but that's been my experience. I don't know if it's the same in, uh, in women's sport, but the uh, homogenous, like the encouraging, the encouraging of homogenous behaviors and uh, this sort of sense of stereotyping is not useful. And um, not only does it deny you an amazing experience of humanity in life, but uh, it's not useful for a team environment either. Perform Best performing teams will have diversity of thought, diversity of background often, I think, diversity of personality. Um, and the sevens, like, the sevens is, and there were times as a leader, by the way, where I... I was desperate for just people that were like me because it's easier, <laughs> you know, because you know how they think, you know, I was probably on the diligent side, like traditionally professional, relatively speaking, I think. Um, whereas the kind of the more maverick types or the guys that used to have a laugh, I'd find that a bit challenging, a bit triggering um, because I felt it was like my place to sort of keep them in line a bit. And I did also didn't want to be that person. So but I'm so glad, I'm so glad they were in the team because when you're away on a two week trip, two week tour, wow, they're the, the people that make it enjoyable and make it fun, and they're also the, often the people that would deliver in the moment when you need them and like, yeah, you know, things like that. So you need all of it, and like it's such a horrible thing that over the years we might have squashed some of this individuality out of people, even in terms of like the marketing and the promotion that we do around sport. You know this quite stale thing we've had in rugby for a while and like now i think there's a really nice shift towards highlighting some pretty interesting characters some cool characters that evolved in the game that might have been a bit risque or too risque kind of 10 years ago but now we're getting to see the beauty of stories behind people's sporting lives and and that's what people want that's what people thrive off and it makes it more accessible as well so i think the more we can do that the better off we'll be i really get worried about the fact that young kids are seeing there's there's so much comparison of others there's so much i want to be like the person next to me and that messaging outside of the sport or just in society as well for them is only reinforcing that it's look at what's here on instagram and why not be like this when being like you is not what you kind of want to be uh, there are some amazing uh, and i try to encourage especially young 
people to just clean their feeds to the message that they they do wholeheartedly know is is true and the thing that they think they value and so look for those people that are speaking the messages of individuality whether it's taking on a podcast or a conversation like this whether it's it's blocking or unfollowing someone that you think is saying the opposite message and telling you to look a certain way be a certain way i yeah i just see that there's a lot even just in how people dress i mean fashion's fashion but like i, I feel there is spectrums. There are people that are really expressive. And I live down south in Brighton. It's one of the most expressive cities in in this country, right? So I see I see a really high end of that spectrum. But in younger people, I think there's there's definitely some work to be done in that individuality yeah. area. I, I, I mean, obviously, it makes sense, right? To, to want to conform to a degree, like when we think of the way our brains have been designed and survival over the years was being part of the group and and that's why often we want we don't want to exist outside the group because it's the safe place to be in it and to a large degree in society that's still the case but beware yeah <laughs> beware the the conformity uh um, comparison is a thief of joy after all exactly look tom i'm really conscious of time because you've got you've got courses to get back to you've got kids that are going to be waiting for you I think it would be awesome if we could do a part two almost of this at some stage, um, get you back on. There's there's loads of, of areas that I'm sure I'm going to think of coming out of this episode, but some that I haven't even touched on that I've been writing down notes throughout. So especially around pressure and uh, and sacrifices and things like that, I think there's definitely way more that we could dive into. And and if you're keen to do that, I'd love to have you back on in the future. Yeah, super keen. And, and also if this one goes out before we do another one, I'd be cool to hear what resonate with people or relevant or people want to hear more of because and i'll quite happily talk about anything but probably nice to make it relevant for people listening yeah for sure where just just before we wrap this one up and we and we send you off where is the best place to send people if they want to watch more of what you're doing and keep up to date with you so sort of signpost them towards the best place to to find you uh, instagram is probably the best at the moment so at tr mitchell um, don't know what my current profile picture is probably still me <laughs> playing rugby which I need to update because I'm no longer a professional rugby player so we'll let that go but that's I'll, something I'll, we'll get into the next one actually yeah I also also the changing hairstyles I think that's something that <laughs> yeah <laughs> I showed a video this week actually to the uh, the coaching and I had to point out in the video which one was me because I had a very cropped <laughs> smart haircut and uh, yeah maybe I need to go back to that I don't know Never yeah. gonna, maybe that'll be conforming too much other who knows yeah. look look this has been awesome i uh, i really appreciate your time and I, i'm actually really psyched that you would come back on and and we can get get another episode done cheers thanks for having me mate i've loved it awesome